The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So another big welcome to everyone. I want to just review our four-week Buddhist studies class that we'll be having this spring. So just four to four weeks this one. Often the classes are eight weeks long, but if you want a little bit more of a practice opportunity this spring. After our four weeks studying the Three Refuges, Common Ground's um, twice annual community practice intensive begins on April 10th, Monday night, and it will be three Mondays ending on Saturday the 29th of April. And, you know, usually we have 45 to 70 community members, both online and in person, that for that 19-day period or whatever it is, we just increase our formal practice time in a way that makes sense, given our other duties and responsibilities. So it's, it's in a way, it's a perfect tag-on to the three refuges. You know, we'll be reflecting on what has my life taught me directly, not from somebody 2,600 years ago, Yeah, so it's a perfect tag-on because you'll get, um, having reflected on what's what's worthy to place my heart upon, to dedicate my heart to, and then, you know, with a group of other people, committing to applying ourselves. So maybe sitting a little bit longer in the morning, maybe adding a little time in the middle of the day, even if you're in an office, to do 10, 15 minutes of practice or take a mindful walk in the middle of the day, do a little bit more study or practice in the evening, do a half-day retreat or some other kind of practice opportunity during the middle of it. And then we end with a day-long practice on the 29th. And we're going to do that, Sarah Wilson and I are leading this, and we're going to do that at the retreat center so people who are in the area can carpool out to the retreat center for that Saturday the 29th. So to, anyway, keep that in mind, and I'll send out the link to register later in the course in case anybody's interested in that. And if you're new to Buddhist studies, it's, uh, you know, there are certain components to this class that we've been running here at the center for uh, about 23 years now. And it's a six-year curriculum but it's not like anybody, including myself, ever gets done with the curriculum. We just keep moving through these different organized teachings from the Buddha each time around for someone like me who's done it a number of times and several of you have been doing it for years and years. You know, our own understanding where these maps are really better illuminating my own experience as a human being. That's the point of these maps, not just to study them so we can impress our friends at parties. Hey, did I ever tell you about the Eightfold Path, or the Four Noble Truths, or the Seven Factors of Awakening, or the Five Spiritual Faculties, or the Five Hindrances, or the Three Unwholesome Roots and Three Wholesome Roots, or you know any of these other... And because it was an oral tradition for many hundreds of years after the Buddha's death, or even at the time of the Buddha, um, you know, they use these sort of structures so it's easy to remember them. And they're 
all of these different maps are overlapping. That's another way oral traditions keep their integrity. It's the different stories, the different maps cover the same territory. So if, if some particular group starts that whole telephone process where the teachings start to evolve, get creative, put their own particular spin on, well, it won't line up with the other overlapping maps. And somebody will do the finger wag and bring everybody back in alignment. And it's, you know, it's not perfect, but there's a certain integrity to these teachings given that they've been passed along first as an oral tradition then as a written tradition for 2,600 years. That's a long time. <laughs> that the teachings still, <clears throat> not perfectly, but amazingly map onto our human experience in a way that for me, and I think for so many of us, really illuminate, oh, so this is what it's like to be me, <laughs> to have a mind and body, to have a life. right? And hopefully that will happen many times. So that's that component of contemplation where we're getting these teachings you know, to the articles you study, the talks you listen to, my teaching, your discussions in the small groups, and with your other Dharma friends, right? You're getting input, and then you're thinking about that input in terms of your actual experience. That is so important. That's what we mean by contemplation or reflection. There's a way where we go from just having learned something, maybe even we're capable, we've memorized it, we're capable of repeating it back with a lot of accuracy, but we still haven't done that work of contemplation, or whatever word you want to call it, where you're taking the concept and you're, you're kind of trying it out, like, how does it actually illuminate my experience? How does it help me see what I haven't seen yet? about my own activity of being a human being, the mind, the heart, the body, this. So we actually have insight. We see something we haven't seen. And that seeing isn't like a conceptual riff on some concept we already know. Because that's still in the realm of intellectual processing, where we're kind of creatively connecting different ideas. But there's something different that happens when we use the concepts directly to help us. It's almost like we're using it as a filter or as a light to, to have a, uh, an immediacy of being present with the mind and body. And then when we have insight, we're seeing something in that immediate way that's not dependent on the map, although the map was useful, maybe, to have that insight. The insight isn't the same as the map. So, like, I might have studied the Four Noble Truths, or, like, we're going to do the Three Refuges, Buddha being awake, and understanding what that refuge of being awake actually points to in our experience. But once you notice this wake, awakenness, in your own mind, in your own heart, then you don't need that word Buddha to take refuge in. You want to take refuge in that direct experience of being awake, alert, balanced, clear, aware that in a way that you're not doing the awareness. There's an awareness 
capacity for awareness, that receptive, open presence, that we then use the word Buddha to remember, to keep that in mind. Oh, yeah, there is this capacity. I don't want to forget that. It's always helpful to be awake as we live our life, to be reflectively aware. There is no situation, even the most embarrassing situation, you know, it's good to know. Oh, this is humiliating. It really hurts. Because we'll be able to take care of ourselves in the situation better if we're awake. And Dhamma, you know, and we'll talk more about these in weeks two, three, and four. Tonight I want to mostly talk about faith. But Dhamma is just the way it is. In, in its depth, as much depth penetrative depth as we can, which isn't about like trying to get deep as much as getting out of the way, because reality is already real. (laughs) So, you know, we don't need to do anything to make reality real. We just need to be receptive. We need to let it teach the heart. We have to, in a sense, let reality have its effect on the sensitive mind or the sensitive heart. So, you know, even times, even though at times we use that word like to penetrate the truth, we use that word to deepen, you know. So there's, we can misunderstand those kinds of words. We personalize it. Okay, I gotta really bear down so that I see penetrate the truth. And we end up just getting tight mostly and then we start to make stuff up because it's you know it's just we've applied ourselves so rigorously to see something it's just uh, we start to see stuff because we want to it's much more about this uh, there is some there is an effort right there's an effort to remember this capacity for that balanced, receptive presence. Like to keep that in mind and to let Dhamma be our teacher, just the activity of the present moment, the activity of the mind, the activity of sight and sound and touch, the activity of whatever it is that's moving. What does it have to teach us? And we have to overcome an arrogant certainty that there's nothing here to learn. Where did that come from? So I, I'm mentioning that because uh, you know you might take notes in the talk, or when you do some of the reading, you might take notes, or after your sits, after your mindful walks, as you learn. And in this course, you know. What is my experience of Buddha? How can I use that concept in a way that's actually useful for me? Which means to be awake. And Dhamma, you know, before even the time of the Buddha, Dhamma or Dharma, it just meant in Sanskrit or Pali, it just means, it used to mean, the Buddha changed a little bit, the law. So like in the yoga mystical tradition, Dhamma is the law. The way it is. In Buddhism, it 
it got more used like the underlying nature. So when Buddha, when this capacity to be awake is intimate with the way it is, then insight happens. And then we can take refuge in Sangha, which is a way of being a human being that arises out of being awake, intimate with the way it is, as opposed to being disconnected and caught up in my thoughts or interpretations about the way I think it is. And that's not Sangha, that's just being an ordinary human being, mostly animated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And even when we think we're being compassionate, a lot of the times it's still greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, that we may actually help people in some ways, but it's still ego-based and, you know, it could just be... uh, a contraction coming out of a tight place in the mind. So uh, this week and week three we'll have small groups. That's part of the Buddhist Studies program. So um, people are strongly encouraged, whether you're online or here in person, to stay to nine o'clock. It's respectful to stay to nine. And in those small groups, you don't need to share. And it's really people have permission just to be there and as a support to other people who are talking. We'll have groups of four-ish, three or four people in each group. And there are 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes at the end of week one tonight and week three, usually every other week. And it's a little sacred space that we create together, each group, where there's confidentiality. You introduce yourself, share your pronouns. You're here in person, sit close. If you're online, <laughs> you know, have your video on. So you're showing up as a human being. It's, you know, obviously everyone, there may be particular circumstances that don't make sense, but when you introduce yourself, just share that. You know, i sorry, I, I can't have my video on or it doesn't, you know, it's not appropriate for me to have my video on. Sorry about that. It's totally fine to do something like that if that's what you need to do. And then each person gets about two minutes just to check in and I'll, mention the theme in the small groups right now, and I'll talk about it. But it's basically, you know, what is your relationship to faith? And you might even give a little of the origin story, you know, like, what did you have faith in when you were a kid? What did your culture, your upbringing teach you about faith? What do you have confidence? What do you trust? How have you been betrayed by places you put your faith in ways that feel safe to share with the group? What do you understand intuitively is a refuge for you? What supports that intuition? What experiences have you had that support that intuition that this is something I want to keep in mind? This is something I feel I can, I can place my heart on. I can trust. You know, traditionally in early Buddhism, faith usually means, you know, especially culturally in Buddhist culture, faith means you have faith in the Buddha's awakening. But 
it's not so much we have faith in the Buddha's awakening, it's more, well, if a human being did it, then I can do it. That's the point of that teaching that, oh, what is actually possible for us humans? Because it's really easy to uh, fall into a habit of just low expectations for ourselves and for our human life. So that it ends up being, well, I just need to get by. First, let me get to Friday, you know, then let me get to my next vacation or whatever. The next fun thing, the next meal, the next time I get to scroll through the internet and be oblivious or get to sleep again or And, uh, you know, one of the great things about people with some spiritual awakening, they have a kind of confidence that can shake us up because they basically are saying, there's something to do with your life other than just getting by and hoping that you don't get a terrible disease or face financial ruin, having invested in Silicon Bank. Is that what it's called? People will listen to this talk 10 years from now and wonder, what was that? <laughs> but just a couple of days ago, a relatively large bank failed. You know, and a lot of people probably have some insecurity who maybe had their funds in that bank. So what do we have faith in? And so we can have faith. Oh, I'm not even sure what awakening is. And you don't have to use that word, freedom, peace, peace, I like ease with conditions. Gil Fronstel wrote a wonderful book, Buddha, Buddha Before Buddhism. And uh, one of the things uh, that these early teachings that Gil translated in this book called The Book of Eights, it's an early collection of uh, teachings from the Pali Canon, and uh, one of the things that was common in these early teachings is they didn't talk about the Buddha as a Buddha even. They didn't use that term or the Tathagata, which is another sort of term that's used in later in the suttas. They didn't talk about arahats, these fully awakened ones. They just talked about sages or wise people. And the characteristic of a wise person in these early teachings is they're at ease with conditions, not thrown around by the highs and lows, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of circumstance. Oh, it's like this now. And so that's a nice kind of way, you know, when we think about a Buddha, an awakened person, or what might be possible for a person like lowly old me, you know, well, maybe this heart has the capacity to be at ease no matter what happens. And then the other thing that gets talked about in these early discourses is, well, that is how the sages, wise folks are described, people who are at ease with conditions, with circumstance. And the practices that they promote are you practice being at ease with conditions. And there's such an integrity between the means and the ends of the practice. 
Okay, well, the conditions for me right now, if I cultivate a sensitivity, a balanced presence, well, it's like this now. Can I be at ease with these conditions? And maybe I'm losing it right now. You know, it's been a bunch of triggering events, and I'm really in a reactive state. Okay, I'm really in a reactive state. I'm really tight, my body's tight, my mind's tight. I'm not even seeing clearly... Is it okay to be at ease with this? Because clearly I might need all kinds of interventions if I'm really, you know, in a bad place. But what will support all of the interventions that might be possible for me to take care of myself in the situation, they're going to arise more clearly if I'm at ease as much as I can be with the conditions as they are. And then the other way, and then this is what we'll be talking about the next three weeks. So faith is described as faith in the Buddha's awakening and faith in the triple gem, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, the three refuges. Which are, if you hadn't heard that phrase, the triple gem. So in Buddhism, the triple gem is Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and it's just Buddhist code for our practice. We're practicing the means And the end of practice is being awake to the way it is, Buddha, Dhamma, and then living a life of Sangha, which means our response, our engagement, is what naturally flows out of that intimacy. Now this brings us back to that story, which I wasn't planning to tell about Sharon and Trumpa Rinpoche and best in these sorts of things to trust the pretense of chance, right? Like, basically he was saying, go to India if you want, be Buddha, being intimate with Dhamma, and Sangha will happen, (laughs) you know? Everything will become your teacher. And, you know, it's just so amazing when you see these kinds of synchronistic things happen, that happen, not because we planned them. I mean, like, even in a little miracle kind of way, you know, the fact that here at a corner of Minneapolis, we have a sweet little center, you know, and a community now for 30 years in a nice retreat center. I mean, simple, not too big retreat center, 80 miles to the east, and we have all these people online, and we have our YouTube channel, and dharmacy.org, and, you know, But it wasn't like it was planned, (laughs) you know, or anybody had some grand vision. It was just a natural, lawful, beautiful expression of sangha, you know, that the funds came together and the supports and the teachers and all the things that made the place happen. And it's just the continuation of so, I mean, the roots of all of those causes Probably no beginning, right? It was just like the continuation of other sproutings of wholesomeness, and on and on it goes. You see how conducive all this can be of faith, of confidence. Imagine if we went through our day, like tomorrow, and I really encourage you all to explore this 
explore how faith, confidence, spiritual confidence, can be a powerful intervention in your actual life. So you go through life as if, like, everything is conspiring to teach you how to be free. Everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, right? Everything is conspiring to be your teacher. As if some, you know, benevolence, generally in Buddhism we don't personalize things, and we don't even distinguish between inner and outer. You know, God is out there and I'm here, or, you know, whatever benevolence is out there, and I'm just messed up here. But, but if we went to like that there's some something conspiring, some benevolence conspiring us to understand how to be more free. And it's a, it's a wonderful teacher because when we do things that are conducive of suffering, it teaches us, yeah, this is conducive of suffering. Can't you tell? You're hurting. <laughs> you know, The mind, the body, the heart, it's tight. It's heavy. It's hard to bear. Oh, when I relate this way, it feels like this. When I relate, when I show up in the world in these other ways, it's like this other way. You know, it's light, it's free. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of that lubricant of love, you know, where we feel like we belong. And we feel like there are things we can contribute. There's all these circles of dana that we sometimes talk about at the center of these generosities in a perfect translation, but it's really how energy works when we cultivate the, this uh, perception that this life can be onward leading. There's something to do with this life that's truly beautiful, and not just for me, but all around, a gift all around, a gift that keeps giving. You know, this is the thing, uh, what's that principle in physics, you know, that energy is conserved, you know, it just keeps getting transferred into different, you know, always it doesn't just disappear. So if we set, and in, in our practice, when we do something with intention, when our motivation, intention is wholesome, to set something good in motion or to uh, direct the heart towards release, towards freedom. But it's like a seed. And, and in early Buddhism, faith is often uh, talked about as a seed. You know, seeds are amazing things. A little seed can do amazing things. I mean, a whole forest can come from a seed. And not only the forest, but all the creatures that then live in the forest, and then all the uses of that wood. And I mean, it's amazing what comes from just a seed. And that's these positive seeds. And that's what builds the faith. Like, okay, I'm not there yet, but we can get a sense of what might be possible. And we need to practice 
using our imagination in that way of what might be possible. Like if I can have a moment, like just I uh, gave a talk last night, Sunday night, on, on tranquility. And, um, you know, tranquility is a powerful experience because when we're really tranquil, when we're really feeling a moment of contentment, there's something in the body and the mind that just doesn't want to move because we're content with the way it is. We don't need the moment to be different than it is. So in that moment, there's a kind of stability, or even, you know, that's a weird word, solidity, to that energetic sense of the body-mind. Really grounded, really rooted. So even an experience of tranquility, it's so provocative to our normal conditioning to want to become somebody, to want to get something, to get rid of something. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm totally content with the way it is. Like those desires, when we really have strong tranquility, it's like, I don't need anything else right now. And if I can keep my mind on the tranquility, we really notice, oh, this is the mind that doesn't have any desire or isn't identified with any desire, isn't sticky with any desiring. And we get a sense like, this is actually, this must be a possibility for this mind and heart not to be burdened or oppressed. The Buddha calls, you know, desire is like a burning fire, that grip of desire. And so when it's gone, even just for a moment or for moments, it teaches us something. I know directly, experientially, that beautiful experience of this heart not constricted by desiring is possible. Because I saw it. And if it's possible in one moment, maybe it's possible in more moments. Maybe it's possible as a human being to have desire, because, you know, desire is sort of life force. It just animates life. You can't be a human being without desire. But we can directly experience, but I can be a human being not confused and identified and misunderstanding desire. Like thinking just because I have a desire, I have to act on it. Well, that's an easy way to get into trouble, all kinds of trouble. You know, if, if we don't have any choice but to do something about every single desire we have, a lot of our desires are illegal or, for sure, inappropriate in all kinds of ways. I'm assuming I'm not the only one. People are laughing, at least in the room, maybe online too. You know, so we already know how to refrain. And how about if all of our desires... You know, we had that kind of serene disenchantment. Oh yeah, there's that desire. I could act on it, and maybe I will if it's not going to cause anybody harm, but I don't have to act on it. So we're in that nimble place that some desires to act on, like putting a sweater on when we're cold, doesn't do anybody harm. Others' desires, like to want to be a good friend for someone, might be a really wonderful desire to act on or to feed my body, 
That could be a nice desire to act on, a compassionate act to feed our body good food, so it's healthy. Also in the tradition that the um, we talk about faith as verified faith, inspired faith. Oh, I'm sorry, let me start with uh, yeah, inspired faith, verified faith, and realized faith. And uh, so inspired faith is kind of like we borrow it. Somebody who seems trustworthy enough says something, hey, I did this, this happened to me, I think you could do it too. The image the Buddha uses a mother cow who crosses a river and then stands on the other side and makes that kind of lowing sound, you know, telling the calves, you can do it and you have to do it. (laughs) And I'm here telling you, you have to do it and you can do it. You know, and eventually the calves do their best and they cross the stream or the river. And so that kind of inspiration where we hear something, because we won't really have verified faith unless we do that leap where we're inspired to be present, but we don't really know what the Buddha means by being present, and even what it means to sustain present moment awareness. And what do I do when some negative thought comes up? You know, I mean, it's all like Greek to us initially to learn how to be present, to practice. But we're not going to have any verified faith unless we actually do some practice. We have to make that intention to practice. We have to be motivated. So we have inspired faith. Verified faith is that what I was talking about, where we contemplate the teachings and we act on them. We use them directly and we get a personal sense, oh, these can be helpful for me. I see. I'm learning. I'm seeing stuff. I'm learning stuff I hadn't learned before about my own mind, about my own experience. That's verified faith. And then it, then uh, realized faith that comes from realization, insight, is kind of a more of an earth-shaking where we've had enough learning that it there's a seismic shift in our understanding. We don't do that shift in understanding. It isn't something like, I figured out, oh, okay, this is the way that it is. It isn't an intellectual process. It's there's enough experiential data that it changes how the mind understands, how the mind, the kind of background understanding, the background view we have about what this is. It changes. And when that happens, whether it's a small insight or a big insight, it it's always surprising. Oh, like, I'm different now. And there's no going back. That's the sense when insight happens. That something has shifted, and it's like the data had been accumulating, and eventually there's enough data that overthrows the previous view and replaces it with a new view. And all of that happens naturally. You don't cognitively do that. And that's a shift. And you can tell insight happens because something surprising happens. 
and all you know is something is different. You know, and then over time, you might get a sense there's more resilience, there's more nimbleness, there's more capacity to respond creatively, appropriately than I had before, less rigidity. Oh. Whatever it was, it was onward leading. It was going in the right direction towards easeful with conditions as opposed to having a problem with conditions. Feeling like conditions, my circumstances are out to get me. And it isn't fair. Because I want the conditions that that other person has. So you can keep this in mind too uh, these next few weeks about how I can uh, you know, that inspired faith and the kind of energy, the launching energy, you know, the leap of faith kind of energy application that's needed sometimes. And then there's the the great bulk of it is that we have some inspiration and we're willing to practice. And how to get good at, uh, well, what is my mind interested in? And we regurgitate that particular teaching. We don't need a lot of teachings. Just one little thing that kind of stuck in our mind. It was provocative to our mind. Okay, I'll work with that teaching from the Buddha. I'll hold that. I'll keep that in mind as I sit, as I live my day. And I'll see how that teaching might illuminate what I'm not yet seeing clearly. How it changes how I experience whatever that teaching might be. And then over time, can't rush it, we don't control it, the deepening of insight. But if we hang in it long enough, there will be insight. Sometimes for some people it's gradual and they haven't really been given enough information to even recognize the insight. And then, you know, a teacher might say, you know, especially if you know a teacher or a good Dharma friend long enough, they may say, you're not the same you were five years ago or ten years ago. You, you're a different human being. You're, you've dropped something, you know, because it's more about what gets dropped than what you picked up. You know, there's some baggage that used to be there that isn't there. Some rigidities that used to be there that aren't there. More space. Maybe I'll end with this phrase from Joseph, which I really love, when he was talking about this. I guess maybe it was one of his talks he gave on tape. I wrote it down. Let's see if I can find it. It is. Yeah, he said, Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers and one of the important uh, Western teachers in the last 50 years, said, in belief, we draw conclusions. In, and I would add, in realized faith, we rest in openness. Yeah, so that's another telltale sign of that deepening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.